Welcome to Through the Bible. I'm Steve Schwetz, inviting you to hop aboard the Bible bus as we set off for Psalm 137 and 138. But before that, here's a few introductory thoughts by our teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee. There's no basis of authority today. We have no Magna Charta today. There was a time when they decided that the king was not above the law, that he had to be obedient unto the law, and the law originated from God. Well, we pass that today. This nation and its thinking has become humanistic. Humanism is the great philosophy of the average person. It's the philosophy of the news media. It's the philosophy of Hollywood. It's the philosophy of our universities today. And it's the philosophy that abounds in Washington. And it means that there's no basis of authority at all. In fact, the thing that guides decisions today are sociological considerations. Whatever is good for society or whatever is the psychological viewpoint of the moment, why, that's the way the decision is made. And, of course, these things are forever changing. And that's the reason that the law is interpreted one week by the Supreme Court as this, and next week it's interpreted as that because of the changing times. And there's actually no benchmark of authority today. There was a time when actually this nation looked to God, whether they were Christian or not. Our laws emanated from what God had said. What was right was what God said was right. Now, today, right is what makes you feel good. That's what one modern writer has said. Let me pass on today in a few moments here before we come to our study. We always think today of Rome as being one of the great nations of the past, and it was. And historians are beginning to compare our nation to Rome. And Gibbon said this of Rome. See if you see any connection. He said there are five reasons that led to the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. First was the undermining of the dignity and sanctity of the home, which is the basis of human society. Second, higher and higher taxes, the spending of public money for free bread and circuses for the populace. And by the way, does any of that sound familiar to you today? Now, third, the mad craze for pleasure, sports becoming every year more exciting, more brutal, more immoral. Fourth, the building of great armaments when the great enemy was within, the decay of individual responsibility. And fifth, the decay of religion, fading into mere form, losing touch with life, losing power to guide the people. Now, today, all of these things have appeared in our contemporary society. And it was quite a few years ago that Clinton Rosita, a professor of American institutions at Cornell, who made the statement, in our youth, we had a profound sense of national purpose, which we lost over the years of our rise to glory. And then James Reston, 
who was with the Wall Street Journal, he made this statement that the difference between what public men in Washington say in public and what they say in private is greater today than at any time since the war. And he says in public they talk about how optimistic and wonderful the future is. But the private conversations of thoughtful men here in Washington are quite different. For the first time since the war, one begins to hear of doubts that mortal men are capable of solving or even controlling the political, social, and economic problems life has placed before them. And so these are some of the things that are being said. Dr. Seagrave Singer, a professor of history at Salisbury, North Carolina, for many years. He said the American dream is vanishing in the midst of terrifying realities and visible signs of decadence in our contemporary society. And Dr. Albert Heimer, who was professor of history at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, he made the statement, the United States of America in the past 50 years has been dominated to a large extent by persons who do not understand the spiritual heritage bequeathed by their own ancestors. And then Dr. Machen said, America is coasting downhill on a godless ancestry. And God pity America when we hit the bottom of the hill. And it looks as if we're about to hit the bottom of the hill. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the one that we look to as the foundation of our lives. And as we study today, would you help us to listen to your spirit alive in us? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now let's jump into Psalms 137 and 138 on Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Now, friends, this psalm that we're coming to is known as an imprecatory psalm. Psalm 137, and this is a psalm that there's been a great deal of criticism about. It is a psalm that the minute that you come to it and read it, well, you find out it is a psalm that makes you sit up and take notice. And to me, it's like riding down the highway, and all of a sudden you come to where three flares have been thrown down. Three red lanterns are hanging out that tell you to slow down. Or it's like that cross that used to be at every railroad crossing. Stop, look, and listen. Well, the first flare here tells us that this is an imprecatory psalm. Or the first flare says stop. And what we have here is one of the historical psalms and the very interesting thing is no historical book tells us anything about the history of the children of Israel when they are out of that land. After they came into the land, after they became a nation born in the brickyards of Egypt, the minute they go out of that land, the Bible has no record of them. And that's the reason between the Old and New Testament, you have no record. There's no record of the 70 years captivity. Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel tell us something about it, but none of the historical books. And there is a wide hiatus here, a wide gap, a void and a vacuum. 
And then you come after the Babylonian captivity to the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and you pick up the record. Now you can look through a keyhole at their tragic plight. And that's what you have in this psalm here. You see the children of Israel down in Babylon in captivity. This is a bird's eye view of the hopeless life they lived in captivity. It records their tragic yet tender experience, the bitter hatred and the deep love that was in their heart. You can put your ear to the door of this psalm and you can hear the sob of their soul. That first is stop. That's the first flare. The second flare, it says, look, stop, look. And verse 4 says, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign or strange land? And the question that is raised there has no answer. There are a lot of questions like that. A question asked Mr. Milktoast, you know, are you still beating your wife? You can't answer it. And you can't answer this question here, as we shall see. And then there is the third flare, or the stop, look. Now listen, this is one of the imprecatory psalms. There is a prayer, a wish here for vengeance that has called higher criticism to jump in glee. They just say that this could not be in the Word of God. Listen to it. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Now, you can take the position of higher criticism today and reject this psalm. There are many folk that do that. They say, well, I believe the Bible is the Word of God, but I just don't like this psalm, so I won't accept it. And that is generally the position of higher criticism. And there are some today who call themselves Bible believers that use that same method. It's an untenable method, by the way. It's an untenable position. You just can't hold to that at all and be logical. It's the one view that doesn't make sense at all. It's like the simple fella down in Texas, country boy, he joined with a neighbor of his to buy a cow. And so when they bought this cow, the neighbor said, I tell you what, you take the front part of the cow. That's the nicest part. I'll take the back part of the cow. And this poor simple boy, he thought that was a good thing. But it took him about a month to discover he'd made a mistake. He had the end of the cow that you had to feed. And the other fellow was getting the milk at the other end of the cow. And the idea today that you can come to the Word of God and you take the part you want and leave the other part. You just can't take that position. Then there are those that say they believe the Bible from cover to cover, but they're rather ignorant of it. One of the criticisms that's been made against fundamentalism, and I'm of the opinion it's been valid in many cases, is that we are anti-intellectual. Well, I've been amazed in my ministry at the ignorance of the Bible among both ministers and laymen. You know, there's more than one way of denying the Word of God. You can merely act as if it's not the Word of God, and the way that you do that is not to study it, not to read it. If this is the Word of God, my friend, it's the most important book that there is in the world. It's more important than the newspaper. It's more important than the TV, and it's more important than the book of the month if it's the Word of God. And we deny it by the very fact that we practically reject it 
in our daily lives. Well, the other position is we can believe it and attempt to determine the meaning. And with that kind of an introduction, I'd like for us to look now at this very wonderful psalm. Stop, look, listen. Now we have here in the first two verses the central experience of these people. In verses 3 and 4, you have the critical experience, and in verses 5 through 9, the crowning experience of these people. It is believed that this was written, we do not know who the author is, that it was written by one that was down in captivity, one of the captives that had been taken to Babylon. There are others believe that he was an old man that had returned after the edict of Cyrus, and he came back to Jerusalem, and then he looked back upon those 70 bitter years. Well, it was written by someone who was a captive. That is for sure. And who he is, I don't know. But now let's look at the psalm. That's the important thing. It says, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. And that's the location of it. That's the setting of it. These people are by the rivers of Babylon, and they've come all the way from Jerusalem down there. They knew something about it. Well, they were born in the brickyards of Egypt, and now they're down in slavery in Babylon. They came out of the land of Goshen, and they went into the ghettos of Europe. But the question is, what are they doing there? Why are they out of the promised land? Well, let's look at them for a moment. It says, there we sat down, deep dejection, despondent, despair, desolate, in dire desperation. That's their condition. And by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept. Will you notice that? We wept when we remembered Zion. Their woe begone. Now, the Psalms were given us songs of praise and we've been looking at those, songs of joy, but not this one. This one throws in the crying pal, and there's quite a contrast between Jerusalem and Babylon. Their home was in Jerusalem, and it was beautiful for situation there in the hill country. Now they're down on the plains of Babylon, and they're by some drainage ditch, by some irrigation ditch. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. And they went back in memory to the fact that they had come from Jerusalem. Now will you notice, and they had no heart for singing. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. They're not going to be singing anymore. Now will you notice what we have here? Here is their critical experience. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Well, they had already hanged their harps upon the willow trees, the instruments of praise. You know, there are a lot of Christians today that put their harps on the willow trees. And no praise to God today at all. Now, when they were down there, my, they became very interesting spectacle to the people of Babylon because they heard about them. And so one of the tour agencies, I guess the Tanner Gray Lines, ran a bus out there to let people go out and see them. 
because that temple in Jerusalem had become world famous. Tourists all over the world and over the years, they came to Jerusalem. They said, you ought to be there at a feast time. And they sang psalms. They had an orchestra and they had about a hundred thousand in the choir. My, I tell you, they were the singers. David had been the sweet singer of Israel. Have you ever noticed the number of musicians that the Jews have given to the world? Well, the Babylonians saw their harps on the willows, and with a sneer they said, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. They taunted and ridiculed them, and they said, Heist us a tune. And all they had ever heard were the Babylonian beetles. Well, all they knew was rock and roll or smoke gets in your eyes or something like that. But these people now can't sing. They can't sing. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And with a sob of the soul, they said, we've lost our song. And you mock us. We can't sing. And that's the question you can't answer. I don't know the answer to it. How are you going to sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And that's the reason that a lot of folk today have lost their song. A lot of Christians today. Well, there are those that have a natural tendency of being pessimistic. The psychologist tells you there's some folk that are filled with melancholy. It's the opposite from sanguine. And they're not happy at all. There's a plastic surgeon here in Southern California that advertised, I'll give you a permanent smile. <laughs> he can't do it, my friends. He may twist your face around till it looks like you're smiling, but you're not. And then there are a lot of Christians that have had discouragements and disappointments and life has buffeted them in the portals and arrows of outraged fortune. And I saw a lady sitting in a service one day, one of the most unhappy faces I'd ever seen. Heard a story after that. And I must say that I thought, my, how terrible it is to sit in church with a face that is as sad as that. But she had reason for it when I heard a story there are a lot of folk like that. And then there are Christians like David, that their sin was in their lives. And he's prayed, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. But somebody says, the Lord Jesus was called a man of sorrows. Yes, but he's the one that hath borne our grief and carried our sorrows. He didn't have any of his own. It was sin that put them by the rivers of Babylon. That was the reason that they were there. That was their condition. They had sinned, and because they had sinned, they are down by the rivers of Babylon, and that is the reason. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, said, O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do thou it for thy name's sake, for our backslidings are many. We've sinned against thee. And he was the one that pointed out that it was their sin that had brought them into that situation. Now will you notice what he says here? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And that brings us to the crowning experience. If I forget the old Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. This is the ray of hope. They now pledge an allegiance to God. This is their repentance. They'll obey him now. They want to be back in the will of God. This is a confession that they make. Listen to them here. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. 
If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy, remember, notice now what they're saying here. Here is a cry for justice. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem who said, raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. You see, the Edomites got in the cheering section and cheered the Babylons and encouraged them to destroy Jerusalem. And now they are praying, O God, remember it. And then, O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stone. Now, this is the law of retribution. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And the Lord Jesus said, For all they that take the sword will perish with it. Now, you must understand here the mind of the Israelite. He went back to Jerusalem. He saw that brutal Babylonian soldier come in and take his baby. And he took that little tender thing and dashed its head against a stone, ripped up the stomachs of the women. And my, how horrible it was. And that's a matter of record. And Cyrus did the same thing when he took Babylon. Whether you believe it or like it or not, friends, what you sow, you're going to reap. And that's all that the psalmist is asking take place here. Now, the fact of the matter is that somebody is going to say, and we hear that today, oh, people are more civilized today, you know. We're not like the God of the Old Testament. We today are very wonderful people, and we're civilized. We don't believe in capital punishment, and we believe in being nice, sweet people. Do we, my friend, did you know that we're the folk who dropped an atom bomb that blotted out two cities? Did you know that we carried on a campaign of destroying an enemy? And don't misunderstand me. I think it was essential. But we're not as civilized as we think we are. And that bombing campaign paid no attention to women and children. So before you read this psalm and find fault with the God of the Bible, my friends, search your own heart. Did you approve of the bombing there? And there are a great many folk today that would begin this type of thing today. They'd drop an atom bomb at just the wink of an eye. It would not take much to cause that. May I say that this is a great psalm? This will make you sit up and take notice. This will make you search your own heart. This is a psalm, my friend, that reveals that you and I live in a big, bad world. And men are not nearly as civilized as they think they are. That men are evil in their hearts. And the Lord Jesus told us what comes out of their heart. And it wasn't a good thing in the lot. And Jeremiah says, the heart's desperately wicked. Who can know it? And only God has a remedy for this kind of heart trouble today. This is a great psalm, and we've spent a lot of time with it. Now, when we come to Psalm 138, the psalm that, of course, follows this one. This is another great psalm, by the way. And we saw the harps hanging on the willow trees in the last psalm. Well, in this psalm, they are in the hands now of the godly, and the harps are being used for the praise and worship of Jehovah again. The remnant have now come back to God. 
Now, this is a psalm of David, and because the temple is mentioned here as a reference to it, there are those that feel that he could not have written it. Well, the word temple could be tabernacle just as easily, and apparently it is that kind of a psalm that is speaking of the tabernacle and of the days of David. We're told here, and it's in the inspired text, that it is a psalm of David. And this is a wonderful psalm of praise, and we're going to have to reserve this till next time to look at it in detail. But we'll be moving now along rather rapidly. We have one other psalm that we consider very important, and then we'll be moving rapidly to the end of the book of Psalms. Get ready for the epistle to the Ephesians. Until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved. Get your notes and outlines for our study in Ephesians at ttb.org forward slash Ephesians or request your copy of Briefing the Bible, the compilation of all the notes and outlines today at ttb.org forward slash Briefing the Bible or by calling 1-800-65-BIBLE. Next time, we continue this amazing journey through God's entire Word. I'm Steve Schwetz, and I'll see you then. Jesus made it Our journey on the Bible bus today is supported by the prayers and gifts of fellow passengers as we travel through the Bible.